Hey, I just got back from Uganda. They're celebrating 50 years while we were there, 50 years of independence from Great Britain. Who wouldn't get jacked up about that, right? We get it. But I think the most exciting thing about the trip was I was able to take along with me our campus pastors and their wives. Our campus pastor from West Cary, our campus pastor from Holly Springs. And now we're going to be able to partner with the three orphan children's villages in Uganda. Uh, here at the Raleigh campus, we're going to, we're going to go with the Gulu campus. Uh, our, our West Cary campus, they're going to partner with Vera. And then our Holly Springs campus, they're going to be partnering with Subi. So I asked the campus pastor's wives to tell you what impacted them the most about their first trip to Uganda. I've never seen Christianity lived out the way that I witnessed when we were there. It was just so overwhelming to see the way that they're truly taking care of the widows and the orphans, and actually the widows are taking care of the orphans. People were not just looking at physical needs and trying to meet those, but they were really trying to meet spiritual and emotional needs. What excites me the most of partnering with the Bira tribe is just that there's so, so many simple things that we can do for them, for the children to have um, activities and to have some kind of a playground. And I'm especially excited about being to able to invest in the moms there and provide some kind of um, a retreat or something for them that we can go and do and just invest in them and encourage them and just know that they are, they're doing what God, they're being Jesus to those kids. We get the opportunity to work with the Subi Village and I'm thrilled for that as well. Um, I think there's over 1,200 children and 167 or eight moms. Those moms, you know, they don't have a babysitter and they don't have girls' nights out and they don't have those opportunities. And so that same kind of opportunity where we could really go and serve the women, those mothers, would be incredible. They're just so intentional about showing these kids that, they, that they're individuals and they're important and they're loved. And um, so as sad as it is, their stories are also heartbreaking that um, they are, they're going to go into this amazing environment where they have a future. And that wouldn't have happened otherwise without the people of Watoto taking them on. Everything from Living Hope to the baby, baby Watoto to the villages, um, everything about it is extremely intentional. I love that piece and I love that our church sees the value in what they're doing and we have much to learn from them and they have things that we can give as well. And so I love that this is going to be a neat partnership together. That's the thing I'm most excited about in the future. I could take all you guys there. I got to tell you, if you could spend one week there, it would have more impact on you than 15 years of my messages. I'm just telling you to see how people really live out the life of Jesus Christ. It's like, oh, this is what it looks like. Uh, there's a guy that it, I've been, uh, this is my fourth year going, and uh, the guy that's been my host or driver or showing me around, taking care of us when we're there, his name's Boniface. They call him Bonnie. And uh, I never really had heard his entire story until we were at one of, and I didn't tell the other churches, the other services this, but see, you choose to come to the last service. I have no deadline. I can go as long as I want to, as long as I'm ready to speak by five. So settle in, okay? And uh, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm talking to Bonnie. We're at one of the, the children's uh, hospitals, the infants, where they take the infants in. Many of these infants, by the way, they get out of latrines. Uh, one infant was being actually dug up out of the ground by a dog. Someone had buried the baby alive, and that's how they found the baby. And this is how they get many of the children. But um, I was talking to him, and 
he had, uh, I said, Bonnie, tell me your story. He says, I have six brothers and sisters, all got married. Every one of my brothers and sisters died of AIDS. All their spouses died of AIDS. Every one of their children died of AIDS. And he said, I ended up as a 10-year-old boy living on the streets. And he says, I always wondered why didn't someone take me in, right? But through a series of circumstances, he, he came into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You'll never see this guy when he's not smiling. The joy that is radiating. And you know what really reminded me of more than anything? Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said, blessed or happy are you when you can live this way. We've got it so screwed up. I don't even know if we can fix it, to be honest with you. Our value system is so messed up. We can't find happiness because we're, we're just all these other things. We need money to be happy. We need this to be happy. We could never give away something because we might need that. We won't be happy without it. I'm telling you, these people, let me tell you something that really put things in perspective. A few weeks ago, the Watoto Church, 20,000 people, right? The average annual income for a family in Uganda is $500. Okay, put that in perspective. On one weekend, this church gave $1.2 million for missions outside of Uganda. A third of it went to Israel, a third of it went to New Zealand and Australia, and a third of it went to South Sudan to start a new ministry there. $1.2 million given from people whose household average income is $500 a year. Now, we're only about half that size, but compared to $50,000 as the average in America, it would be the equivalent of us doing a one-weekend offering of $50 million. And you think that their priorities aren't different? You think that they don't get it? It's amazing. By the way, you know how God does. He says, if you give it away, I'll bless you. They gave it away. God brought us in. We blessed them. And we were able to give to help them build a worship center up in Laminadere. Let me just show you. It's going up. There's the, the roof's going on. They're going to be able to sit about 1,500 of the children in the orphanages, the people that live there, the surrounding community there. They hope to be in there by December. And it's because of your sacrificial giving that made that happen. So it's got just cool. What's, I, just, I just wish I could take you all there. It would, be, it would change your life. This is what Laura and I are thinking. I was holding a little girl in there. We're seriously thinking about that we need to adopt her. She was born with spinal bifida. Her legs don't work. She doesn't speak yet. She's four and a half years old. That little girl I was holding is four and a half years old. And we thought, you know, God's given us the resources. We could bring her into our home. We may have to hire a nurse to live with us. But, you know, that there's so much we can do to make a difference in the world. If we could just get, I mean, look around at the empty seats. You know why people, the seats are empty today? The fair's in town. I mean, we got people who love barnyard animals and, and artery-clogging foods more than Jesus. I mean, when he comes right down to it, okay, you know what I'm saying? We're so screwed up. Um, I got till five. I hadn't even gotten to the message yet. Next week's pure in heart. <laughs> Good luck with that, okay? Uh, and then the next week is Blessed of the Peacemakers. A couple of weeks ago, we had John Perkins here for a morning event, and we had a great crowd turn out. I was so overwhelmed by the story of John Perkins. I didn't know it until I came that morning. John Perkins was born in Mississippi, grew up in Mississippi. His brother is in the army and fought Hitler in World War II, survived all the bullets and the bombs and the grenades of World War II, come, came home to Mississippi to be killed by a white supremacist here back in his homeland. John Perkins then moved to California to get out of that environment in Mississippi. Through a series of, uh, of events, and he'll share it with you, he became a follower of Jesus Christ, moved back to Mississippi, where he has spent his life in the ministry of reconciliation. As followers of Jesus Christ, we're all supposed to be involved in the ministry of reconciliation. So I thought when we talk about a peacemaker, what a better person to have here. But this is what I want us to do. 
One of the passages I love in the Bible is Colossians 3 where it talks about, you know, you got, you got the Scythians and the barbarians and the Greeks and the, Gen, the Jews and the, and the Gentiles and you got the slaves and the free. You got the men, the women, they're all sitting there worshiping together and that's my vision of what a church should be. So I thought, what, wouldn't it be cool if two weeks from now when we talk about blessed are the peacemakers, we went out of our way to invest and invite someone who's different than us. For example, if you're a white family, you might, you might invite an African-American family or vice versa, or you might invite an Indian family, or if you're a married couple, uh, you might invite a single mom. But I'm going to really challenge you to be thinking over the next two weeks, who can I invite? Who can I bring to church that's totally different than me? And maybe we'll even go to lunch afterwards, and we'll get to know each other a little bit. But I wonder what would happen in our relationship and in our world if we began to become ministers of reconciliation. I think God could change. I think if reach the triangle, change the world, this would be a great way to start. So I'm going to be talking to you more and more about that. That's two weeks from this weekend. The other thing I need to ask, and I know we have some empty seats because of the fairs in town, but um, I really desperately need some of you to consider moving to Saturday night. We do the exact same thing Saturday at 4, 15, 6 o'clock. We wear the same clothes. We don't, we, don't, we don't even brush our teeth overnight. We want it to be exactly the same, right? And uh, we need some of you to shift. And it's not even the seats so much. I hear every week we have people who drive here. They don't realize you have to get here early. All the hoops you have to jump through. There's nowhere to park in the parking lot. And they just leave. They never come back. They don't stop at the off-site lots. They don't know that. And so that's why it's so important. It might be that one family whose life's going to be changed forever. But they can't get a parking space in the parking lot, right? So if, if you want at least change to another service, and I really would encourage you to do that. Uh, would you consider parking off-site? Would you consider coming Sundays at 5? Uh, we're having a great time. That service is growing there. So keep all that in mind. So we're talking about showing mercy, and now I'm just starting my message. All the rest was free, okay? Um, showing mercy. Some of us are good at it. Some of us not so good. In fact, I hurt my nail. Look at my nail. Look how black that nail is there. I saw Gary Vett last night. He said, Mike, how'd you do that? I said, Mike, it was incredible. I was, uh, we had a layover in London on the way to Uganda, and we were at the hotel, and I was putting the iron aboard away, and it caught my finger, and it squeezed it. He said, I'd keep that to myself. <laughs> I'd keep that to myself, right? He doesn't have mercy. He doesn't have mercy. Now, here's the thing. This is one thing we all have in common this weekend. We're all going to find ourselves in a situation where we desperately need mercy. And sometimes looking back, it's kind of funny. Now you look back, you can laugh at it. For example, a few years ago, Laura and I had to go to a birthday party for a relative, and, and we didn't have a gift, so Laura said, we got to go by the mall, so we go by the mall, and as we're walking down the mall, she said, hey, this will save us time, and we're in front of the Hallmark store. I want you to go in and buy a card. It's got to be a card for a girl, okay? And, and but when Laura wants my attention, she grabs my cheeks. Look at me in the eyes. Look me in the eye. I want you to get a card. Can you do this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I can do this. I can do this. I know I can do this, right? So, of course, I go in. I buy the first card I see because I don't really care, right? I get a card. It looks like it's for a girl. We'll go with it. But I'm standing in line, and there's like three or four ladies in front of me. And I got, you know, I got this ADD. Like, oh, there's a squirrel type thing. You know, I mean, I, I have to constantly be doing something or I'll get in trouble. So I, I thought what I, there was this big round display of cards. It was kind of like a cake tier. And they were stacked up there. And it was all the cards that play music. You know, the, those obnoxious little tunes they play that, that you send to people. So I'm opening them and oh, I'm laughing. And, and I would kind of rotate the table. And, I'd, I'd, I'd watch, and then I'd rotate the table. What I didn't realize is this, not, this was not a table that was meant to rotate. <laughs> this was a piece of round plywood sitting on a base. And every time I rotated a little, it was getting a little bit more off center, a little bit more out of kilter. And finally I rotated. And sure enough, that table flipped hundreds of cards flying all over the place, landing on the floor, open, all playing their obnoxious little song at the same time. Not the worst part. Behind this table was this big glass display case. This plywood hit that display case, and it exploded like a bomb went off. And that little safety glass, it's like those little round pieces of glass, 
flying all over the store, rolling all over the, still not the worst part. This glass case contained all of these expensive little figurines that people who have too much money and, and don't have a life buy and put in their house. It contains all those things. They're being crushed and shattered. Everything, I mean, the women are screaming. They're jumping behind counters. And this was my thought. I am so glad Laura is not here. That was my thought. That's seriously, that was my thought. And I look up, and guess who's standing? Right there, hands on hips. What did you do? You know, no mercy, none, zero. So I turned to the cashier, and I reached in and got my wallet, pulled out my American Express. This is why you never leave home without it. And I, I extended it to her, and I said, I know this is going to cost me, but here. And she said, sir, just leave. I said, can I pay for my card? No, just, just take your card and leave. <laughs> leave. Now, you interpret that any way you want. I interpret it as she extended to me mercy, right? <laughs> right? So sometimes you look back and say, now that I think about it, it was kind of funny, but aren't you glad? Right? Sometimes not so funny, you know? You may be here this weekend, you're married, you did something that has absolutely blown apart your spouse's ability to trust you. And now you're in a situation, if your marriage is going to be resolved, it's going to be based on her or his willingness to extend to you mercy. Or maybe you're a student and you deceived your parents. Maybe they caught you in a lie, said you were somewhere, you were somewhere else, or something happened, and now that trust is broken down a little bit, and you're at their mercy to extend, or you're at their mercy to be extended mercy. Or maybe you find yourself in the criminal system. Maybe you didn't pay your taxes. Maybe you did something wrong. Maybe you broke the law. And you literally are throwing yourself at the mercy of the court, praying that mercy will be extended to you. See, here's one thing we all have in common. At one time or another, we're going to need desperately mercy extended to us in our life. Now, this weekend we're continuing our series we're calling The Great Paradox. It's finding happiness in the strangest places. If you're here for the very first time, we're glad you're here. This is a series that is based on the Beatitudes that are found in Matthew chapter 5. And if you were here the first week, and many of you were, I mentioned the very first week that the Beatitudes are actually the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, you've probably read it, you know more than you realize. It's in Matthew 5, Matthew 6, Matthew 7. The very first part is the Beatitudes. And, and like any good preacher, in his introduction, Jesus uses the Beatitudes to basically set up his message. And there was one specific message that Jesus wanted to get across to his audience that day by starting with the Beatitudes, and it was, it was basically this. If you want to follow me, if you decide you want to be one of my disciples, if you want to be a part of my kingdom, remember he's, he's now just beginning to talk about this kingdom thing. He says it's, it's going to take a shift in your thinking because it's going to be more about being than doing. You're all, you, your whole life has been about doing because your life has been about the law, the Old Testament, about doing the right things, obeying the Ten Commandments, trying to live this perfect life, which you can't live. That's what it's been about. But now it's going to shift. It's going to be more about being than doing. It's going, about be, it's going to be about being poor in spirit. It's going to be about being uh, mournful over your sin. And then I want you to be meek, and you're going to have to be hungry, and you're going to have to be thirsty for righteousness. And then you're going to have to learn how to be merciful. And then you're going to have to learn how to be pure in heart. And then you're going to have to learn how to be a peacemaker. And it's like Jesus says, once you can be what I want you to be, what I call you to be, then you're going to be able to do the things that I want you to do. Now you're going to be able to do the things that you've been taught to do all of your life, but you've never been able to do. 
For example, if you've ever read the Sermon on the Mount, there's a common phrase that appears over and over again. Jesus says, you have heard it said. Whenever Jesus said to this crowd, you have heard it said, he was referring to the law. He was referring to what we have today as the Old Testament. That is where they had heard it said. That's where they had been taught everything that they knew. Now Jesus says, there's a new sheriff in town, okay? I'm going to take it a step further. You have heard it said, but now we're going to take it to a whole new level. For example, Jesus made statements like this in the Sermon on the Mount. You have heard it said, this is what you've been taught all your life, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. That's what you've been taught. Jesus says, I'm going to change that. This is what I'm going to teach. I'm going to teach you to love your enemies. But let me ask you a question. How can you possibly love your enemies without first being merciful, right? Again, he says, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery, he says, I'm going to take it to another level. I'm going to say, don't even lust. How can you not lust after someone if you're not first being pure in heart? You've heard it said, don't murder, one of the big ten. You've heard it all your life. I'm going to say, don't hate. How in the world can you not hate until you're, laced, until you're at the place in your life where you can be a peacemaker? In other words, Jesus wanted them to understand, you cannot do the Sermon on the Mount without first being the Beatitudes. Now, this weekend, we've come to our fifth beatitude, and we're looking at another paradox. A paradox is a statement that contains conflicting ideas, and, and the beatitude is in Matthew 5, verse 7, blessed, happy. We know it's the Greek word makarios by now. Blessed or happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, you've got to understand the context that Jesus is giving. Jesus is speaking to a crowd that is made up of, of religious people in its first century Rome. Understand the, the religious a crowd in the first century, they were the most merciless people on the face of the earth. So much so that one time Jesus was speaking to them, Matthew 23, verse 33, this is what he referred He said, you snakes, you brood of vipers. I mean, you're not going to win friends and influence people talking to people like that. But Jesus could not stand the religious people, the religious system of that day. It, the only people he was ever hard on were the religious people. I mean, if you're here this weekend and you're kind of just checking church out and you hate religious people, you already have something in common with Jesus. He couldn't stand religious people either. But it wasn't just the, the religious culture that was so vicious. The first century Roman culture was merciless. Did you know that in the first century, a Roman father had absolute power of life and death over his children? In first century Rome, you do the research yourself, if a child disappointed a father, the father had the right to even either have that child sold into slavery or he could have his child killed. And I know what some of you parents are thinking. Oh, for the good old days, you know, right? <laughs> Merciless society. If you were a slave owner, first century Rome, you could kill any of your slaves, no recourse whatsoever. You didn't break the law. In fact, it was considered a weakness to be merciful in first century Rome. That's the culture that Jesus is speaking to. And he stands before them and he says, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Now, if we're going to understand this message, if we're going to understand mercy or merciful, there's some other words that we're going to have to get our arms around. So let me give you some definitions of, of words. Uh, here's the first one, justice. I want to give you the definition of justice. Mercy, and then let's just throw in grace. Here's the first one. Justice is giving a person what he deserves. Mercy is not giving a person what he deserves, and grace is giving a person what he doesn't deserve. Isn't that clear? Let me give it to you one more time, right? Justice is giving a person what he deserves. Mercy is not giving a person what he deserves, and grace is giving a person what he doesn't deserve. Let me give you an illustration. It would be God's justice to send me to hell. 
I sinned against God, that's what I deserve. Don't look so shocked, you deserve to go to hell too. We all deserve, it's God's justice to send us all to hell. It's his mercy to choose not to send us to hell. And it's grace that says, not only am I not going to send you to hell, I'm going to provide a way for you to spend eternity with me in heaven. Now here's the tension, here's the tension. If justice is giving a person what he deserves, and God is just, that's one of his attributes, and if mercy is giving a person, uh, not giving a person what he deserves, and God is merciful, how can God be both at the same time? How can he be just and give us what we deserve, what we got coming to us, because he's a holy God, and how can he be merciful and not give us what we have coming to us? Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever used the phrase, God is love? You know, maybe you have, it makes a great bumper sticker. Maybe you have it on a key ring, a little magnet on your refrigerator. God is love. But when you say God is love, what you're saying is basically this. God doesn't just love. God is love. God is the full embodiment of love. In the same way, we have to remember that God isn't just just. He's the full embodiment of justice. God isn't just merciful. He's the full embodiment of mercy. He's not half justice. He's not half mercy. Whatever God is, God is completely. And that's really, really important because I think a lot of us have this idea that God, part of him is justice, part of him is mercy, and we're praying and pulling really, really, really hard for the mercy side of God because we, would, we want to experience the mercy side of God. We don't want to experience the mercy half of God. That's not the way it is. That's not the case. He's not half justice and half mercy. He is full justice. He is full mercy. Now, here's the question. How can he be fully both? I mean, has God got some like weird personality disorder you know he got several per- how, how can he be both well this is where we have to understand justice before we can really understand mercy so let's let's answer the first question what is justice and, a, and, a, and an easy biblical answer is God is justice God literally is the full embodiment of justice but the word justice means morally equal morally equal now let me tell you why this is important you recognize these they're known as the scales of justice and they represent our court system and and what it means is basically this if you get charged with a criminal offense you have to go to court Uh, what's going to happen while you're there is the prosecutor's going to get up the one who brought the charges and they're going to present their case their evidence on why you should be found guilty and it's going to go on one side of the scale and then your defense attorney, your team's going to get up, and they're going to present to the court and the jury all of the evidence why you should be found innocent. And what you're hoping for at the end of the day is that the evidence of you being innocent outweighs the evidence of you being guilty. It's going to tip in your way. Uh, that's what we think of. That's justice in our court system. Uh, understand, justice before God isn't a matter of our good outweighing our bad. It's a matter of this. Before God, are we completely 100% perfect. In other words, this is what it means. Are we morally equal to God? Now, that's the real issue. Are we morally equal to God? See, this is the problem. I think a lot of us think that one day we're going to stand before God and, and God's going to put all of our bad deeds on one side of the scale and he's going he's to put all our good deeds on the other side of the scale and hopefully the scale's going to tip in our favor. Hopefully we've helped, a little, uh, we've helped more little old ladies across the street than we've drowned puppies. You know, hopefully we've done more good things than bad things, right? And hopefully, hopefully it turns out in our favor and it tips the scale our way. Understand that is not how it works with God. Let me show you how it works with God. God takes me, and we got this little guy here. He's like Gary Vett. We're going to put him right there, okay? A little muscle guy because we feel like we can do it all. God puts all of me, all of my life, all of my good, all of my bad on one side of the scale. 
God puts himself, and I just used his word here, okay? God puts himself on the other side of the scale. And it's like his side of the scale is 16 trillion tons, right? And it's like a little feather on my side of the scale. And the reason it's like a little feather is because even on my best day, think about the best day you've ever had spiritually and morally. Is that somebody's fault? Okay. Is that Jesus? Are you telling me to say hello? But anyway, um, the best day you've ever had, you didn't kick the neighbor's dog, you were nice to your wife, you didn't drop the F-bomb one time. I mean, you were just incredibly good on that day. The best day you've ever had. You're not even going to come remotely close to being morally equal with God. Now, if that's the case, how is it that God's justice can be satisfied? So one, we can be reconciled back to him so we can have a relationship with him. And then on top of that, we get to go to heaven and live with him eternally when we die. How is that possible? Well, here's how it's possible. See, we're on our side of the scale, and we're jumping up and down. We are doing everything we possibly can to get this scale to move, to somehow begin to tip this scale in our favor. I mean, we're helping little old ladies across the street who don't even want to cross the street. We're trying to be good. We're trying to do the right things. We're going to church. We're reading the Bible. We got a little extra cash, and we're sponsoring an orphan in Uganda. I mean, we do everything we possibly can to impress God. We still can't get our side of the scale to move, and it's because we're never, ever in a million years, no matter how good we are, going to be morally equal with God. And then one day, we remember something we read or we heard, and we realize, wait a second. Maybe it really is more about being than doing. So one day, we finally become poor in spirit. We realize, man, I am spiritually bankrupt before God. I have absolutely nothing that God wants. One day we realize there is absolutely nothing I can do in my life that's going to impress God, that somehow is going to tip the scale in my, in my favor. And then the next thing I do is I begin to mourn over my condition. I mean, this breaks my heart. I am separated from God, and there's nothing that I can do about it. I mourn over my condition. I mourn over my, my sin until finally one day I hear this message, and I realize I have an option. The only option, the only solution is to accept God's free offer, God's free gift of salvation. In other words, what Jesus Christ did on the cross for me to pay for my sins, that is available to me as a free gift. And if I decide to take advantage of that gift, this is what happens. Jesus steps on the scale with us. And all of a sudden, God looks at us and says, oh, you got Jesus. Justified, equal, I see you as I see my very son, Jesus Christ. He took care of your sin. I am satisfied you're in. In other words, to satisfy God's justice, God gave his son, Jesus, on the cross, the punishment that we deserve. This is what Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him, referring to Jesus, who had no sin to be sent for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You know what that means? That in Jesus we become morally equal to God. Not in us, in Jesus. And that's why, that's why a just God can have a relationship, but not only have a relationship with us, he can allow us to be a part of his kingdom while we're on earth, and when we die and go to heaven, we can spend eternity with him. This is the part where you applaud. This is, this is good stuff here, okay? This is a lot better than anything you're going to hear in any political speech. This is the real deal right here. So question number two, what is mercy? 
Well, the simple answer, again, is God is mercy. He is the full embodiment of mercy. But let me give you our culture's definition of mercy. We think of mercy this way. It's to show compassion to the poor or the guilty. And that's pretty accurate. When we think of mercy, when we, when we extend mercy, when we're showing compassion to someone, it's usually because uh, they're either really, really needy or they're really, really guilty. And in a moment of weakness, we extend mercy to them. Now, here's the reality. Before God, we're both. Without Jesus Christ in our life, every one of us is incredibly needy. Without God in our life, every one of us is incredibly guilty before God. By the way, that should encourage you if you're here this weekend and you're not a very religious person, you don't even really like church. In fact, you don't even know why you're here. I mean, your wife's been bugging you to death to come to church, and I don't want to go to church, I don't want to go to church. And finally she said, I'll take you to the fair if you go to church. You're like, okay, honey, I'll go to church. Maybe that's why you're here, you know. Or maybe there's a cute girl at work and you found out she goes to Hope and you thought, well, if I go to church, that will impress her. Maybe she'll go out with me. Regardless of why you're here, we're really, really glad you're here. But now you're here. And you may be feeling a little awkward. I mean, you may be feeling as out of place Lady Gaga at a convent. You know what I'm saying? Because you are surrounded by all of these incredibly good, godly, moral, perfect church people. Right? That's got to be intimidating. Now, let me tell you something. I want you to know some of those church people sitting around you, they have out you in their life 50 to 1. They are some incredibly guilty people sitting around you. Don't let their cute little faces fool you. I'm promising you it took them all morning to get their halo on over their horns. That's why they have to come to the very last service. I mean, it's like they can't make it happen, right? I mean, every one of us guilty before God. Guilty before God, we need his mercy. Now, here's the thing. A lot of us culturally, we think that this is what Jesus was teaching. If you will be merciful to other people, people are going to be merciful to you. Now, that sounds good, all warm and fuzzy. It's just not true. It's kind of like karma. I can't believe how many Christians tell me, oh, I believe in karma. That's hogwash. That's just something people came up with because they don't want to believe in God. That if I do nice things to people, nice things are going to happen to me. What goes around comes around. That, that's not what Jesus was teaching. If you, you, you can be merciful to a lot of people. Have you ever lived in the world? Really? I mean, you can show mercy to a lot of people. I guarantee you, a lot of people are not going to give you mercy in return. That's what our culture teaches, karma. That's not what Jesus is teaching. Now, remember, the New Testament is written in Greek. This Greek word for, this, the, the Greek verb for mercy is to compassionate. I mean, it, it's spelled the exact way as compassion, but it's to compassionate. We usually use the word as an adjective. We'll say he's a compassionate person, she's a compassionate person. But the verb form is to compassionate. Now, this is what it means. It means to put compassion into action. So if you need a biblical definition of mercy, it would be that, to put compassion into action. In other words, God didn't just look at us and say, oh, look, it breaks my heart. I have compassion on them. He didn't just have compassion on us. He compassionated. Instead of giving us what we deserve, justice, what did he do? He said, I've got to do something to get them out of this situation. I've got to do something to get them out of the mess that they're in. What does he do? He sends his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to take on the cross what we deserve. That's mercy. It's compassion in action. Now, here's the third question. How can I be merciful? I mean, Jesus says here that merciful people are happy. If, if merciful people are happy, and I want to be happy, we all want to be happy, Here's the question, how can I be merciful? Well, let's go back to Matthew 5, 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. In the Greek, the original language, that phrase, will be shown mercy, is actually just one word. And this is what that word means. It means to continue to receive and extend mercy. You continue to receive and extend mercy. In other words, you don't continue to get mercy and just contain it. 
you get it, you receive it, you extend mercy. Literally, it's a picture of this. It's a picture of the fact that God pours mercy into your life, right? And then the mercy that's in your life, it flows out of your life into the life of others. And as it's flowing out of your life into the life of others, God's on the backside refilling and extending more mercy to you. It's a cycle. Mercy goes out, mercy comes in. Mercy goes out, mercy comes in. Mercy goes out, mercy comes in. Now let me ask you this. Why is this important? Most of us think that once we're followers of Jesus Christ, once we accepted that free gift of salvation, we no longer need God's mercy. That's not true. We need the mercy of God every day. I mean, Lamentations 3.22, it's by his mercy that we're not consumed every day. I don't know about you, but I did some things this week and thought some things this week and had some attitudes this week where what I deserved was God to go and just fry me on the spot. I'm telling you. What kept him from doing that? It's because as mercy goes out, his mercy comes in. As mercy goes out, mercy comes in. It's the only way you can be merciful if God is filling your mercy tank. Let me just show you one other thing. This word that Jesus uses in Matthew 5, 7 uh, for merciful, it's only used one other time. This exact word is only used one other time in the Bible. It's found over in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. This is what it says. For this reason, he, again referring to Jesus, for this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way. Why is that? In order that he might become merciful. So the first time the words used, Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful. The other times, Hebrews 2, 17, Jesus is merciful. And, you know, I'm just a little, I'm just enough of a Bible geek, right? To, you know, I'm not a tech geek, but I'm a Bible geek. And when I hear something like that, I'm what is the unique, specific idea of this word? Well, understand, Greek language, first century Greece, this is what it meant, merciful. To get in another person's skin. That's what they said. When you're, when you're merciful, you're getting in another person's skin. Now, we have an English equivalent. It's what? You walk in another person's shoes. The Greeks said, no, we're going to take it further than that. It's literally you get in that person's skin. Now, this is what's so cool about this. When you think about that, that's what Jesus did. I mean, he got in our skin. He didn't just stay in heaven and, and direct the angel. He, no, he got in our skin. He became human flesh. He became one of us. What does John say? John 1.14, the word, John's favorite way to describe Jesus, the word became flesh. And what did he do? He made his dwelling among us. He lived among us. He got in our skin. Later on, the writer of Hebrews tells us that while Jesus was living among us, while he was in skin, this is what he says, while he was on this earth, incarnated, it literally means, it literally means uh, flesh, uh, or it, it, mean, it means, it means uh, it, chili con carne is what? Flesh with, beans with flesh. Okay, but it's true. Jesus con carne, think of it that way, is God with flesh. That's, that's what it means. What, what are you people laughing at? It's not that funny. And anyway, when he, when he was incarnated, he experienced everything we ever experienced. Now, you got to put it in perspective. What's Jesus known before he became incarnated? God with flesh. Heaven, sunshine, joy, joy, birds singing, angels singing. No pain, no sickness, no death, no sorrow. Every day's a party in heaven. But when he becomes flesh and he lives among us, have you ever thought about this? For the first time when Jesus was laying in that manger, for the first time in his existence was eternal, for the first time ever, he felt what it was like to be hungry. You ever thought about that? When he got his first diaper rash, first time he'd ever felt pain, Ever thought about that? Never felt weak 
until he got to earth. He experienced what it was like to be so exhausted. He got colds. You ever thought about that? There were days where he thought, I can't take one more step. His feet hurt so bad. He got tired. His feelings got hurt. He had headaches. I guarantee you there were some days he couldn't lift his head up because he had such a bad case of the flu. But more than that, rejected, despised, betrayed, misunderstood, murdered. And that's why the writer of Hebrews can say he experienced it all when he got in our skin. Now, what does that mean to us? What are the implications of that? It means this, followers of Jesus Christ, talking to you now. It means when you get bad news, okay, something goes wrong maybe in your life, something goes wrong in your relationship, you discover something about your spouse that just absolutely destroys your ability to trust, or maybe about a child. Something goes wrong in your family. You go to the doctor, you find out something's gone wrong in your health, or this career you thought was so secure, and now all of a sudden you realize that it's starting to unravel. When you're going through those kinds of situations, if there's anybody who, who is going to understand you and going to have mercy on you, it is Jesus. You've got to understand this. There is never a moment, there is never an experience, ever, ever, when Jesus doesn't know how you feel. When we were uh, on our way to Uganda, we had a stopover in London, and uh, uh, so we kind of broke up, and uh, I said, let's meet back here at a certain time, that way we can make sure we get to the airport and all, and... and uh, and Chris Cockrum, he's our Holly Springs campus pastor. He showed up about five minutes late. Now, I got issues with punctuality. I don't believe cleanliness is next to godliness. I, I believe punctuality is next to godliness. And I'll be honest, I don't know how some of you people hold a job. I mean, if you get to work the way you show up for church, it is a mystery to me. And I know you don't get your kids to the school bus late every 15 minutes every day. So I don't know why you can't do it for Jesus. You can do it for the school bus. Well, I, I, see, I got issues about punctuality. I think it's rude not to be punctual. He showed up five minutes late. So I thought, well, it's a good time to give him my punctuality talk. And uh, so I'm giving my punctuality talk. How can you be a campus pastor if you can't be on time? And I, I mean, it's half tongue in cheek, but I'm giving a hard time. And I'm just, I'm just really letting him have it. And he said, well, I'm sorry. He said, the reason I was late, and he reached in the bag, and he says, he says, I know you collect knives, and I do. I keep them on my desk, which makes my wife worry because most people who come see me don't like me. And she says, I wish you would remove those knives because you have a lot of angry people in your office. But anyway... Uh, religious people don't like me. Heathens love me. They really do. I don't understand it. But he says, I found this World War II bayonet that the British soldier used in World War II, and I wanted to get it for you so you could put it on your desk, and that's why I was late. (laughs) And I was like, well, if I'd have known that, you know, (laughs) maybe. A few years ago, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And if you know anything about the pancreatic cancer, it, it, it moves rapidly. And I'll never forget the morning I picked him up because by that point, he was, he was unable to drive. And I thought I was just taking him to another one of his regular doctor's appointment. And I'll never forget Dr. Singh, his, his cancer um, doctor. As we were sitting there in his office, he looked at me and he shook his head like it's not good. And he says, what I need you to do is I need you to take him next door and I need you to have him admitted to Western Wake there. And in three days, he passed away in the hospital. And you guys know, if you've, ever, you, you've lost loved ones close to you, I know you have, you, your world just comes to a halt, you know? And uh, we have family coming in from California, and uh, I had to get on the phone and tell his, his kids what had happened. And on top of that, I was, I was going to obviously speak at his funeral, and he was a pastor for 25 years, and, 
you know, we just, we just, we kind of loved each other. But you know how everything just kind of stopped. So I, did, I wasn't coming to work. I, I wasn't checking emails. And while I was gone, when I finally got back in the next week, uh, I noticed that um, someone had sent me an email about they needed, they, they needed to talk to me. They had a crisis. And I didn't see it, so I didn't respond. And th- they had a follow-up email, which, I mean, just really lit me up. And, and, and I understand they needed me. I wasn't available. And all you can do is ask forgiveness. So I emailed her. I said, I'm really sorry. My, my brother-in-law passed away. Been out of the office. Been dealing with a lot of things, but I'm back. How can I help you? And the email response I got back was this. I am so, so sorry. If only I would have known what you're going through, right? Now, here's the great news of the gospel. Jesus always knows what you're going through. And he's merciful. And he says, you want to be happy? Be a merciful person. In other words, it's for us to continue to receive his mercy. And as we receive it, we show mercy to others. Now, here's the question you got to struggle with. First, do you want to be happy? The second one is this, okay? Who in your life do you need to extend mercy to? And you're like, oh, I knew you were going to go there. Who in your life right now do you need to extend mercy to? Is, is, it, is it a spouse who cheated on you? Maybe, maybe your marriage is blown apart and you've moved on. Is it a friend who betrayed you? A coworker who maybe stole your ideas and deceived you? Is it someone of the opposite sex who used you? Or maybe a parent who abused you? Who do you need to show mercy to? You say, well, they don't deserve it. Of course not. That would be justice. I can't find anywhere where God says, give them what they deserve. Jesus never taught that. He says, you need to be merciful. And it's different than forgiveness. See, forgiveness is for you. When you're mad at someone, someone's offended you, forgiveness is for you. Forgiveness means you release the offense. It means I'm going to let it go because I'm not going to let it eat at me. And if you don't let it go, Paul tells us that it actually gives Satan a foothold in your life and it'll make you an angry, bitter person. And a lot of you are angry and bitter this weekend because you've never forgiven. But see, you can forgive and release and someone's still living with the guilt. Mercy goes back to that person and says, you let the guilt go. Now, I just wonder how many people in our lives who did hurt us are living every day with the guilt. I can't believe I did that. Mercy says... Let it go. Just let it go. Happy are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Let me ask you something. I can tell you this. If you're sitting there thinking, I'm not going to show them mercy, this is what I know about you. You're chained to the past. And you'll never move forward as long as you're chained to the past. So this is also in your benefit to extend mercy. So who... Do you want to be happy or do you want to be chained to the past? Isn't Jesus so practical? Uh, but now here's the cool thing. It, the choice is yours. Nobody can make you do this. But I will tell you this. Until you get to the point where mercy flows out of your life so that mercy can flow in, you can forget being happy. You can write that off. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you that, uh, as we sang earlier, your love never fails. It never gives up. It never gives up. And Father, there are a lot of people in our lives that we need to extend mercy to. It doesn't mean necessarily that the relationship is going to be reconciled. But I wonder the impact we could have on others who are just beat down in bondage, feeling guilty for what they've done. I wonder how their life could be changed by just saying, you know what? Let's just, let's just forget it. Let's just move on. It happened. It happened. Yeah, you hurt me. Yeah, it was wrong. But I want you to know it's done. It's done. And mercy flows out of your life. And God says, let me fill up that tank. Let me fill up that tank so it can keep flowing. I know a lot of us sit and we read these things and hear these things and we think that's not the way to be happy. And I always ask myself, How's my way working out? <laughs> How's my way working out? That's why it's a paradox, Father, and we understand that these are statements we can't get our arms around. So this is where we're required to trust you. Trust you. That you're God, that you made us, that you know us better than we know ourselves. And we move forward in the comfort and the reliability of your truth. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. We claim that promise today in your name. Amen.